This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Thursday, February 16th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's what we're covering today. Making electric vehicle chargers more available nationwide. But first, new findings on the so-called Doomsday Glacier. That's today's one big thing. The Thwaites Glacier is at the top of the list of glaciers that keep polar scientists up at night, says Axios' senior climate and energy reporter, Andrew Friedman. That's because if it melts, it could raise sea levels by up to 10 feet. Now, new research is expanding and complicating our understanding of this glacier. So how to make sense of it all? Andrew's here with us for that. Hey, so Andrew, first, why is Thwaites called the Doomsday Glacier? Yeah, so scientists are trying to push back against that term, but it's really very true. It's the glacier that could generate the most sea level rise the fastest, at least of the ones that we understand relatively well. So there were two studies just published yesterday about Thwaites. What are the most important things we need to know from those studies? So those studies were the result of a five-year, $50 million research campaign, which sent scientists putting robots underneath the ice. It was some really cool, ambitious work that was done. And uh, the really important things to know about these two different studies are that the melting that is going on there is complicated. There is reason for greater concern. The water that's coming into contact with the bottom of the ice sheet is not as warm as we expected but the glacier is still retreating incredibly fast. So is there anything that can be done to slow or stop the melting of this glacier? Is that even a goal at this point? There are some studies that show that we have already triggered irreversible loss of the West Antarctic ice sheet. I think most scientists, however, say that what we emit in the next several decades will determine the course of sea level rise for the next several centuries. And that includes West Antarctica. The decisions that we make in the next two decades especially uh, may push glaciers like Thwaites over the edge or may contain them. Andrew, you also wrote about another study out this week that had to do with climate change and ice sheet melt. And that study found that human-caused global warming must be limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius or less in order to avoid a multi-century melting of the planet's ice sheets and a rise in sea levels. Is that goal realistic at this point? No, that goal is not realistic at this point. You know, we're already at 1.2C. And we're going right now, uh, if all global pledges are met, we would go to 2.4C. So it's not realistic. However, 
it does illustrate the point that there is so much sensitivity in what we might imagine to be these vast ice sheets that are immovable and we can't imagine that we can have such a big effect on them. But in reality, even relatively low amounts of warming compared to what is possible would significantly disrupt both Greenland and Antarctica. Andrew, I feel like you and I often talk about how difficult climate news is to digest, especially when it seems so alarming. So with that in mind, it was especially interesting for me to read that one climate scientist you talked to said they viewed these papers on the Thwaites Glacier with a sense of optimism. The reason there's some optimism about this glacier is because scientists were looking at all of these nightmare scenarios. We literally didn't know if there was going to be a large collapse of a portion or all of this glacier tomorrow. And now we go in there and they find this data and the data doesn't say, oh, it's going to happen ASAP. It says there's reasons for concern. There's reasons for alarm. We need more studies done and more observations. But it just shows how science works in that it kind of leads to additional questions and additional worries. But Overall, you know, maybe we'll get a better sense of what the true range is here, and it won't be quite as scary. Andrew Friedman is Axios' senior climate and energy reporter. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. In a moment, making EVs a more attractive option for potential buyers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boodoo. The White House announced yesterday that Tesla will open part of its charging network to other brands of electric vehicles for the first time ever. By the end of 2024, at least 7,500 Tesla chargers will be available for all EVs across the U.S., including along highway corridors, making long-distance travel more accessible. Axios' Joanne Muller has been covering this, coincidentally, from a cross-country trip in an EV. Hey, Joanne. Hi, Nyla. So, Joanne, the Biden administration has been pushing for a shift away from gasoline-powered cars. How does this charging deal with Tesla help that goal? Well, look, a lot of people have been reluctant to buy EVs because even though they're going to charge mostly at home, they're worried about that rare road trip that they want to have. So it could have a very big impact. So, you know, the chargers are going in and the the government is providing the funding for some of it. Private companies are spending as well. So I think over the next uh, two to five years, we're going to see a, a big explosion in the amount of charging plugs available for EVs. And you know this firsthand because you just drove from Michigan to Florida, not in a Tesla. How did that go? Yeah, we drove from from Michigan to Washington, D.C., and then down to Florida. And we charged mostly at 
fast chargers that are owned by uh, Electrify America and EVgo. And they're, they're similar to Tesla chargers, but there's just not enough of them across the U.S. yet for everyone to feel comfortable. We didn't have any problem. We didn't have any giant range anxiety. My husband set out first before me, and he was a little worried about cold temperatures draining the battery. So he kept the heat down in the car and just used the seat heater to keep himself warm. You know, we we found that we were okay. But once you start having a lot of people driving electric vehicles, we're going to need a lot more chargers. And for non-Tesla EVs, is having Tesla chargers at their disposal actually helpful? Because are they universal? The Tesla network uses a different type of plug, a different connector than everyone else in the industry. What it means is you're going to need an adapter to charge your car if it's not a Tesla. Now, right now you can buy one of these adapters. It costs like $150. I opted not to buy one because I'm betting on the other networks being sufficient to to get me where I need to go. So by 2030, the White House is hoping EVs make up at least half of new car sales. Given the number of charging stations that are currently available and the rate at which it's growing, how feasible is that goal? S&P Global Mobility, which uh, studies this space really carefully, they say we're going to need at least eight times as many chargers as we have today, both Tesla and the non-Tesla chargers. But I also think that the White House's goal of seeing 50% of all new car sales being electric by 2030 is rather aggressive. I'm not sure we're going to get there, but really it's a problem. You have to scale the infrastructure at the same time that you grow the sales of EVs. And those things really need to be lined up and potentially the chargers need to get there first in order for people to feel comfortable. Joanne Muller covers the future of transportation for Axios. Thanks, Joanne. Thank you, Nyla. One last thing before we go. I want to take a moment to say thank you so much to all of you for writing in your comments, your reactions, your story ideas today and every day, including this, a text I got yesterday from Kara in Philadelphia in response to our story about diabetes drugs being used for weight loss. Kara wrote, as someone who has a chronic illness related to weight, being on the drug is imperative for my health. On one podcast I listened to, a celebrity says her doctor gives Ozempic out like candy. It frustrates me so much that wealthier people have easier access to the drug because they can afford out-of-pocket costs, while I had to jump through so many hoops to get insurance to cover it, even with it being medically necessary. Also, the side effects are no joke. Thanks, Kara. And remember, you can also text me at 202-918-4893. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Get more than just the headlines on Here and Now, Anytime, a new podcast from NPR. In fewer than 30 minutes, you'll hear the news you need to know today and the in-depth conversations that will stick with you tomorrow. Listen to Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR, wherever you get your podcasts.